maybe not, but maybe not tonight. But uh, we, we learn a lot about this figure in 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 9. I want to say a word about these two texts. They happen in very different times in Israel's history. 2 Samuel 7, they've gone from being a ragtag collection of a bunch of people that are finally becoming a nation, a kingdom. And David, this king that's talked about in this story, is the second king, the first real good king. This is sort of Israel at its very best, in the golden years. It doesn't last very long. And then the account I'm going to read from Isaiah is only a couple hundred years later, and everything has gone all to pieces. It's taken almost no time for things to fall apart. Don't have it? Second Samuel. Ignore that. It's okay, it's okay. It's alright. Second Samuel. It's probably my mistake in the email. So, um, you have wonderful memories. All of you, I'm sure, are wonderful auditory learners. So you can remember everything I read to you right now from Second Samuel 7. When the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, I dwell in a tent in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I bought up the people of Israel from, from Egypt until this day. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house? Now therefore, thus say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I'll make you a great, I'll make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. So I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Alright, now Isaiah chapter 9. Again, this is a couple hundred years later. Things have changed quite a bit. You got that one. Good. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. In the latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoiced before you, as with joy at the harvest, when they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it, with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All right, thanks for following along. I'm going to pray. Join me if you like. Lord, uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And we pray now that uh, with our tired minds and our distracted hearts, that you would help us to uh, hear what this text means. And uh, to understand what your promises are. And to see that they are good. And for us. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm going to borrow this from Rachel real quick. Last year during our uh, spring break mission trip to uh, Nashville... During a scavenger hunt, I think it was, we had to find some musicians, street musicians. And uh, it's not very hard in Nashville, they're everywhere. So uh, I found, pretty quickly, I think it may have been Rachel that found them. Uh, no? Maybe? I don't know. Met two really cool guys. Uh, they were a traveling band called the Rugged Diplomats. And I asked them, it took me like two hours a day to remember their name. I thought on, it, on and off. Um, and I asked them about their name, and they whipped out the Virginia flag, and began to explain. And it, I was sort of embarrassed a little bit. No one knew it, but I forgot all about it. Because I'm from Virginia. And I remember being a kid looking at this and thinking, that's pretty awesome, but I don't quite understand it. Um, well, this is the official state seal of Virginia. It's the flag, and it appears on all the stationery. And uh, I want to point out a few features. So uh, this is Virtus, and yes, that is state-approved nudity. Uh, really the only state approved nudity of any state in America Um, but this is Virtus in a victory pose if you notice the spear is pointed downward the war is over Okay, and Virtus represents Virginia Uh, this sword is uh, not a sword of war it's a sword of authority of rule so uh, what we have here is virtue at peace ruling over the tyrant Uh, the royal purple gives it away this is King George. This is Great Britain. And uh, if you notice, the uh, foot's sort of on the throat, and the, and the crown is cast off. Uh, this tyrant, this king, Great Britain, is king of Virginia no more. Chain in the left hand, chain's broken. We're free from the rule of Great Britain. The whip in the right hand does damage no more. Your oppressive rules, your injustice applies to us no longer. We're free from you, Great Britain. And to sum it all up, we have this phrase at the bottom, Six Semper Tyrannis. It's been a joke in Virginia since the Civil War that this means, please get your foot off my neck. (laughs) Uh, In reality, it means, thus always to tyrants. So, sort of the first, don't tread on me, if you will. Um, I know. Uh, Or this will happen to you if you tread on me. So... um, When I say king, I think almost naturally we begin to think of tyrants. We really do, I think, deep down. We think, likely, someone oppressive, someone perhaps most likely unfit to rule, someone who's likely to rule unjustly. We think about, I say we're going to have a king, we're thinking about moving backwards into history. Uh, We're thinking about a loss of freedom and democracy somehow. We don't want... We especially don't want to be ruled by anyone. We like to choose our leaders. 
We want the right to criticize them all the time, even if we elect them, and we want the right to impeach them whenever we want to. Uh, no other people, of course, in human history have had all these rights, but we just think they're sort of natural. Uh, and this is very distinctive about us. Um, and yet, the Bible story arc is one where the, the story it tells is worldwide peace and flourishing come is riding on the reign of a king. That's the promise of these texts. The worldwide flourishing and peace comes with the reign of one particular king. And uh, really, these texts sort of sum up this main point that God's plan is a king like no other who brings healing to the world. So I, I'm going to talk about something that's very un, un, unpopular. I mean, we're, we're Americans. We're, uh, we really don't want a king. We, we barely want a government at times. Um, we want the right to choose whoever we want to and get rid of them on a whim at times. We're very impatient with our leaders. Um, we certainly don't want a king. But God's plan is a king. Is there any, any condition under which we would actually want a king? Is there any kind of king so good that we would actually desire them? Now I think our text actually describes a king that we want to get behind. He's the father's son. He's the people's champ. He's the world's hope. So uh, I'm going to be going back between back and forth between 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 9. You won't be going back and forth, but that's okay. You're a sharp people. I trust that you can follow along. So uh, what we have described at first in 2 Samuel 7 is the father's son. What's actually made clear in the first half of that whole chapter is that this person that's promised is David's son. So David's the first good king, and... Uh, the text describes how David is living in a palace and he recognizes that God's been living in this tent, the tabernacle, for a couple hundred years. And David, being a man after God's own heart, is like, this is not right. I should build God a house, a temple. And uh, basically the story is how God comes to Nathan the prophet and to David and says, all right, let's put things straight. Okay, David, I love you. I love you a lot. And that's why I've, I've chosen you. You are a shepherd. You are no one. I called you to shepherd my people. And I've given you peace from all your enemies. And, uh, and I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to give your nation peace. And I'm not done. Uh, you want to build a house for me? No, I'm going to build a house for you. That's exactly what it says in, in verse 11. Uh, in verse 12, I'll make you a house. And he's not talking about an innate palace. He's talking about a monarchical line. A, a, a house, you will, of, of rulers. Uh, beginning with his offspring. And if you've been with us this semester, you should know that word's important. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. That Adam and Eve were promised an offspring. In the Hebrew, it's a very particular word. It shows up everywhere in the beginning of the Bible. Zerah. The hope of the world is a particular offspring to come. And uh, so what we have here is this mishmash mixing of themes right here that we've had all throughout the story. Uh, a champion who's going to come to tackle evil. That's been promised since Genesis 3. A uh, evil head-crushing, serpent-crushing champion kind of thing. And then uh, this other theme of a king from the, from the line of Abraham, from the line now of David. And uh, then we have this promise in 2 Samuel 7 that his, his rule will be forever. Now, you've got to put yourself in the place of the original readers, everyday Israelites. They're probably hearing this and thinking, well, that's pretty amazing. Wait a minute, rule forever? What are you talking about? Like, how does that happen? 
So maybe they're thinking like a line of succession of rulers forever, which is possible. But I think there's enough in the text to think they're talking about like a king, one king that rules forever. Do you, do you really think that's a good idea, God? Uh, our experience, if you read any history, has been long family monarchical reigns typically aren't good. You may have a good king or two here or there, but often you have lots of bad ones. We want the best man or woman for the job. We want the right to remove them, to impeach them. And actually, it takes almost no time for this thing to go bad. David's a good king, but not a perfect king. His son, Solomon, starts off great. By the time his rule and reign is over, the kingdom is fracturing quickly. Only a couple of kings later, things have fallen to pieces. By the time we get to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, things are so terribly bad. The kingdom is split. The enemies are coming. There seems to be no hope that the kingdom will survive at all, much less the kings. So, um, what... Does this make sense? How do we go forward from here? Uh, what kind of king is God promising? Well, he's promising that David's son will be the great son. But there's also a sense here where it's pretty clear, I think, that God is promising his own son will be the king. It's hinted at in 2 Samuel 7. There's a special relationship between the son and the father. But it's really clear in Isaiah 9. If you look at verses 6 and 7... This description of uh, the son is sort of ordinary and sort of extraordinary at the same time. Verse 6, to us the son is born, to us the son is given. So if your parents never told you the birds and the bees, how it works, your parents had sex. Okay? Yep. And then you were born. That's how humans come into the world. We're really good at this as a family, by the way. Number four is on the way. So this is a very human king. A very human king that's being described in verse 6. A child is born, a son is given. Okay, got it. We would expect a, a son of David. That's said here later uh, in verse 7. Um, of the increase of David, his throne will go on forever and ever. Okay, I got it. A son of David, someone from his line. Got it. Good. But then you have all this other stuff in verse 6 and 7. Like this. Uh, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Look carefully at those titles. There's only been a couple of kings in human history who would ever call themselves anything like this. They were crazy megalomaniacs. Like Nero might call them something like this, you know, perhaps. No, no king would take these kind of titles upon himself. You're claiming to be the Everlasting Father? It's a a grand statement, don't you think? And and especially no Jewish king would ever take this title upon himself. These are the names of God. What Isaiah is saying is this son to come will be in some way God's son too. If you think this blows your mind, man, what was it like for them to hear this? Okay, the person we're expecting is David's son and your own son, God? Yes. All right. If it's hard for us, it's harder for them. But that's the promise. A Davidic and divine son. And uh, just to make clear where this is coming from, the text ends, the zeal of the Lord will do this. In other words, this is God's plan, and this is God's passion. I'm going to make this happen. There's going to be a son that comes who is all these things. David's son, my son, he has these characteristics. So, uh, now the question is, again, is this, a good, is, is this a good plan? Is this good news? And the Bible says it is, especially the text we've talked about, because he's the people's champion. 
now you, you may take like the evidence you have so far. Okay, you're saying this monarchical line, David's line. David may be a good guy, but you know how entitlement works. You put a bunch of people in office for a long time. They get used to it. They get separated from the real people. They get out of touch. That's going to go bad. And then you're telling me this guy is somehow divine as well? Talk about living in an ivory tower, separated from the masses, removed from all the suffering. How's, he, how's, a, how's a king like this going to reign in a way that's good for humanity, that's good for anybody? And uh, the answer is that we have a very different kind of king here. We have one that's humble. One that's uh, humble like God himself. Um, you don't have the Second Samuel text, but if you looked at it carefully, it's really clear how good God is to his people in 2 Samuel 7. It says four different times that God dwells with his people. David feels bad that God lives in a tent. Well, God decided a long time ago to live in a tent because he wanted to be with his people. We talked about this last week. I don't mind living in a tent. I want to be with you. Four times he says that. And um, four times he calls Israel, my people Israel. It's a term of affection. He loves his people and he wants to be with them. And, and God uh, doesn't despise humble leaders. In fact, he chooses David partly because he is so humble. He's the, the youngest son, the most uh, perhaps overlooked of all the sons, um, and, and chooses him as a shepherd to care for his people, to be a king. And uh, God expects his rulers to be humble. He expects them to follow the law. It says that in Second Samuel, that uh, some of these kings that follow after David, God will have to discipline them. They don't get to reign autonomously. They don't get to reign above the people. In fact, they have to toe the line of the law even closer. They have to know God and love God and love justice and love mercy and, uh, and be like that toward the people. And uh, it's clear when you read the story of Jesus' life that this is exactly what he did. That he came and he didn't put himself above the law. In fact, he says over and over and over, I've come to do the Father's will. And that he basically refused to ignore any aspect of the law. That he will, if you if you will, he towed the line of the law. So that he would, first, be righteous, but second, know what, exactly what it's like to be us. That he lived just like we did. That he suffered the same kind of things we suffer. So that he would be a humble king that knows his people and loves his people. Uh, there's a great example of this in uh, one of Mark Twain's books. I love Mark Twain. I don't think he's a great writer, necessarily. But he's a very sarcastic one with a good sense of humor, so I like those things. And um, but in the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, anyone read that? Probably read it in high school, maybe almost nobody. It's a really fun book. So the basic premise is this 19th century smart aleck, cynical, probably engineer, sort of magically shows up in Camelot in Arthur's Court, and. Uh, because of his technical knowledge, his knowledge of the world, he not only survives in a place that wouldn't have been very easy for him to survive, but he thrives. He sort of becomes King Arthur's right-hand man, one of the most important men in the kingdom. Uh, Arthur is a good man, but sort of rigid, uh, toes the line on the rules, very aristocratic, sort of lives above the people. And uh, this engineer who goes by the name The Boss, which is a great name. If you want to give me a nickname, y'all give me that one. Um, the, uh, they decide to take a, a tour of the countryside to get to know the people. And so uh, King Arthur has to dress in disguise. Everyone knows who he is. And they're touring the countryside to get in touch with the people. What it's like to be one of the commoners. And they come to a, they come to a cabin or a hut that's uh, been under the ban of the church and under the ban of the state. 
And they knock on the door, and no one answers, and they go in. And, and they find there what could probably best be described as a, as a scene of hell on earth. Uh, it's a family of four, two of whom are already dead, two of whom are dying. And uh, the boss knows pretty quickly exactly what it is. It's smallpox, the scourge of, well, many, many millions over many hundreds of years. And uh, the boss respectfully but urgently tells the king he has to leave. He himself is immune. He had this before, but the king's not. This could be the end of him. But the king resolutely refuses to leave. And in fact, he begins to serve. He climbs up the ladder and picks up the 15-year-old daughter who's dying and brings her down to the dying mother. And the boss writes or shares in the book uh, this phrase. I'm going to read it because it's beautiful. Um, And again, the boss by nature is pretty critical and cynical. But here we see he's not. Speaking of Arthur and what he's doing, here was heroism at its last and loftiest possibility, its utmost summit. This was challenging death in the open field, unarmed, with all the odds against the challenger, with no reward set upon the contest, with no admiring world to gaze and applaud. He was great now, sublimely great. All the rude statues of his ancestors in his palace should have this one addition, not a chain-mailed king killing a giant or a dragon like all their other statues, but a king in commoner's garb, bearing death in his arms that a peasant mother might look her last upon her child and be comforted. Woo, that's good. And I think it's beautiful. I think he captures there something that really resonates with us. We love leaders that identify with the suffering and care for them. That come down and love the suffering. We love that. We really do. And we'll we'll devote ourselves to them and follow them. We really will. And that's the kind of king that God desires. That's what he says in this text. A humble king that loves his people. That comes down and gets involved in their lives. Uh, And that's the kind of king that Jesus was. He, he came and declared that he was a king. I'm here. Kingdom of God's here. And then immediately began to move toward the broken. He touched lepers. He uh, moved right in with the messy, sick sinners. He, uh, and when he encountered death, he didn't run away. In fact, he often uh, confronted it, comforted people in the midst of it, and even at times uh, angrily cried in the face of it. So this is the kind of king we want. But I don't think it's enough. I think we actually want more. We don't want, I think, just a king who can empathize with us. Right? I mean, all kinds of people can empathize with me. I can get my mom to empathize with me. I can get my seven-year-old son to empathize with me. It's nice to have a king that empathizes with me. I also want a king who can do something about it. Right? It's great to have a king that walks into my pain and shame and suffering and says, man, this is horrible. I'm so sorry for you. That's good. I want a king that can change things. Who can do something about the brokenness. And what we see here at the end is uh, this king is that. He's got something to offer the world. There's reason for hope. It is our nature, even though we're cynical, to hang hope on people. We do this every election cycle. (laughs) We really do. Who's going to be the person that fixes it now? Uh, well, we really historically have almost no reason to bet that anybody's going to change things drastically. We sort of forget all that cynical stuff and hang our hopes on the next person. Uh, we do that with every relationship and dating. Well, we do that with all kinds of things. The next thing is going to be the one. Um, it's our nature to hope. Is it reasonable to hope that one man can change things, can really fix things? 
And I think when you look at their text, it, it tells us that there is. Uh, this king is one that brings healing. He comes in and gets involved. You see it in Isaiah 9, verses 4 and 5. If you go back, uh, we have the, a description here of verse 4 of oppression. The things aren't the way they're supposed to be. The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. We do not live in a just world. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. This king comes in and does something about it. He breaks it. At probably some cost to himself. It's not really clear that there's a war, but he does something about it. I'm going to assume these guys don't give up the yoke easily. There's some combat that goes on. In other words, this king comes in fighting. Uh, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult. Y'all don't know it. Or you may know it only abstractly, but the world is at war almost all the time. It's been a hard year for me and my wife because her homeland, Ukraine, is a utter freaking disaster. The place where she grown up is now no longer what it once was. She couldn't go back there now if she wanted to. And uh, we, we know the reality of this in some way. And we look forward to this promise of peace, uh, of a king that can bring peace into, into just the violence and aggressiveness and selfishness of mankind. We're always hurting and violently raging against one another. So this king comes and gets involved. He brings healing. Verse 7, he rules with justice and righteousness. How much of all that's wrong with the world is due to unjust rule, to selfish rule, to lack of wisdom, to prejudice, to greed? It's hard to quantify, but a lot of it. And here's a God, a king, a divine Davidic king, who pledges to rule with justice and righteousness. To make everything right. It sounds pretty good. I mean, it sounds pretty crazy. Pretty, uh, it sounds like a campaign promise that's really hard to keep. Um, but that's what he's talking about in promising. And not just for his own people. By the time this is made, this promise is made in Isaiah 9, again, the state has dissolved. Judah's just a small tribe. Israel's an utter disaster. The Babylonians and the Assyrians are growing and they're coming and there's war. There's almost no reason for the people to believe that they will even continue to exist as a nation. And God's saying, no, no, I have a king coming. It's not just for you, it's for everyone. It's for the whole world. Uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, verse 1. It's for the people in darkness on the outer outskirts. It's for everyone. And you see this again in verse uh, 7. Of the increase of his government and a peace no end. Never ending increase. Never ending peace. Promises this king will come and reign in his rule. His reign will grow and grow and grow. We're going to talk about this a lot more when we get to the New Testament. To really understand the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to bring. And I... It's my contention that he did bring it successfully, and it continues to grow, um, and that we experience the peace of it when we dwell in it. Um, but it's really hard for these people to see, and it might be hard for us to see. Well, um, the promise here is that when this kingdom comes, it will bring a couple things. Joy, and rest, and peace. You, you see the peace here at the end, verse 7. If you go back and look at verse 3, you see the growth of joy. It's a, it's a rain that's almost too good for us to, be, to believe in. I, I, think it's, I think we do want to believe in it. I think we really do want this. And we continue to hope for it. 
perhaps unreasonably, um, given who we tend to hope for, or, or root for, or put our hope in. But God's promise is He will send a divine Son to do this, to reign this way, to bring this kind of kingdom to bear. Uh, I didn't read this book because I was too old as a kid, selling myself out. Uh, how many of you read Where the Wild Things Are? Or had it read to you? How many of you saw the movie? A couple of you. Cool. So, um, the short of it is, in the book at least, Max is a very spoiled little boy who won't eat his dinner and he enters the imaginary world. But um, in the movie fills things out a bit more. And in the movie, I think what becomes clear to us is that it's easy for us to enter the movie and watch it and think, man, I'm like Max. But in one sense, we're like, we're like the wild things. Um, so Max uh, arrives in the land of the wild things, where chaos and destruction reigns. Things are crazy there. Uh, chaos and destruction reign there. And uh, if you've seen the movie, you might remember this scene where Max arrives... And he's in the land of the wild things, and uh, they figured out sort of who he is, but not really. And they figured the best thing to do is to eat him. And they're a little concerned to eat him because he's really small, and they're afraid he has like little bird bones, and they may choke on him or whatever. And they're talking about this very gently. Uh, Max feels slightly threatened for his life, and, and rightfully so. Um, and as they're, they're closing on him, about to eat him, uh, Max desperately makes up a lie about how powerful he is. He makes up a whole story about how uh, he was back in the land of the Vikings and because he knew all the secrets of the world and because he was so powerful, he, he became king of the Vikings. And uh, the lead monster, whose name was Carol, it's the best monster name ever, <laughs> uh, the lead monster, Carol, uh, seizes on this and asks, you were their king? And then naturally asks this right afterwards, and you made everything right? If I was Max, I'd say, I'd never say anything about that. <laughs> but uh, Max says, yeah. And Carol says, well, you know, what about um, loneliness? What about loneliness? And another monster says, what, what Carol's saying is, will you keep out all the sadness? And all the monsters sort of stare at him with something approaching hope. And Max says, Another lie. I have a sadness shield. It's big enough for me and for all of you. And the monsters begin to say, wow, whoa, it's amazing. And, and then Max, to, to press home his point, he's got momentum, says, and I do this to loneliness. And that's exactly what he does in the movie, by the way. <laughs> and the monsters are impressed. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I knew it when he showed up. I saw it right away. We found our king. You are a king, right? That's exactly what they say. I think we're like the monsters. We're all looking for a king. We really are. We're looking for someone or something with a sadness shield to save us. To keep out all the sad things. We're looking for a king to fix it all. And neither you, as your own king, with all your strategies, and your strategies are work harder, Get better grades, my plan, my boyfriend, sleeping with my boyfriend, the alcohol I drank to feel peace just for a few minutes. None of those strategies are sufficient to keep the sadness away. They're not. It comes back. It always will. 
None of them can do it because what we need is the real king. We, re- we need the real king to come and fix all the brokenness and all the sad things in the world and in us. And the good news is we have one. We have a real king who's come. We'll talk about him the rest of the semester. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the consistency of your story.